You're listening to the Resource Insider Podcast, where we get to know the best CEOs, investors, and entrepreneurs in the mining industry. I'm your host, Jamie Keach. All right, ladies and gentlemen, this is Jamie Keach from the Resource Insider Podcast. And today on the podcast, I'm sitting down with the Chief Executive Officer of Rhyolite Resources, a company that I am a shareholder in and got to know over the last year. His name is Fred Stanford. Now, you may have heard that name before. Fred was previously the President, CEO, and later Executive Chairman of Torex Gold. Before that, uh, he was a senior executive with Valet and Inco. Um, today, we're going to talk about Fred's career, uh, the transition from working for one of the largest mining companies in the world to building juniors, uh, the role of technology in the mining comp- in the mining industry, and much, much more. So, Fred, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you, Jamie. Pleasure to be here. So, you know, Fred, as I as I think about how to start this podcast, I'd like to give the the 30 second overview before we kind of get into your history and what you've done over the last 40 years of what Rhyolite is today and what your goal is there. And I'll ask not to get into too much detail because we'll dig into it over the next uh, 45 minutes or so. But, you know, in a nutshell, what are you guys trying to do today for people who are who are just hearing the name today? Exploration asset that we're pursuing the majority of our focus is on taking deposits that aren't worth much with conventional technology and turning them into very profitable mines with a proprietary mining system that we have access to. Okay. Now, when I was reading through your bio in in preparation for this, uh, I came across something that kind of surprised me a little bit, um, that you are not a mining engineer. You are not a processing engineer, a chemical engineer, a civil engineer. You are an industrial engineer, and I actually haven't met any industrial engineers since I was in university and in, in engineering myself. And I think it's a, a, a sub-discipline of engineering that you know the general public probably hasn't heard before and doesn't know a lot about. And you know, I think it's it's interesting because you know, from what I know of industrial engineering, it's potentially the most perfectly suited discipline for actually building and operating mines. And could you give people an idea of what industrial engineers actually do, what they learn about and, and what the focus of that profession is in general? Yeah. Yes, thank you. Industrial engineers are often called efficiency engineers. You know, they look for ways to make processes work better, systems mm-hmm. to work better. And I agree with you. It's a, it's an almost classic like to actually operate a mine, an industrial engineering degree, I believe is far better than a mining engineering degree mm. because in industrial engineers, in engineering, you're taught to think in terms of systems and how systems integrate to make things more efficient. And a mine really is a whole collection of systems. And if you think through how they integrate, you can remove all sorts of innovations, which in many ways is what the Muckahai mining system does. It, it takes all of the systems of the mine and is willing to sub-optimize one in order to optimize the system as a whole. Hmm. And, so, and so, you know, it's, it's an interesting point you made because, you know, a mining engineering degree is, it's kind of like 
a little bit industrial engineering, a little bit geology, a little bit civil engineering, a little bit chemical engineering, and you're kind of a, a jack of all trades of the mining world. But you know the skill sets required to to find a mine, to build a mine, and to operate a mine are are all kind of very very different skill sets in my opinion. And you know you've spent a career doing almost all of those things. And it's very unusual to see someone that's kind of jumped from role to role and different in such a broad trajectory in this world. And, and could you give us a little bit of an idea of where you started and then and, and how you kind of got from there to here? Well, it's actually interesting. I, when I looked at engineering, I liked chemical, I liked mining and I liked industrial. And I, I wound up in industrial, and then I spent my entire career running mines and chemical plants. Um, and the only reason I wound up in mining is because when I graduated in 1981, I really, really liked designing and building software systems. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I graduated, I wanted one of my own, a project. I didn't want a piece of somebody else's. And Inco gave me that. They were really excited about these new mini computers, and they wanted them in their minds, and they gave me a, a project to do that. And I did. I wrote the first online timekeeping systems, bought the computers, got everything installed, trained the miners, and, um, and had an absolute blast doing it. But then so decided you, did, I, you didn't have an actual plan to go into mining specifically. It was just happened to be a mining company that kind of gave you the role that you wanted. Am I understanding that exactly correctly? Exactly. Okay. Right. Matter of fact, I had a plan not to go into mining because I didn't really <laughs> want to live in mining camps. <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough. Yeah. Part of, part of the reason I didn't take it, but Inco gave me a really interesting job and after two years of that, I decided that I wanted to be president of, of Inco, and, and um, I laid out a 20-year career plan of everything I thought I needed to know to be a good president. I didn't know how to run a, a mine. I didn't know how to run the surface plants. I had labor relations, safety, environmental protections, all of that stuff. I sort of laid out a plan and then got myself a job as a mine foreman underground. Okay, so I was probably 23, 24 years old, and down I went to figure out how to operate a mine and how to work with the, with the, with the miners, mm-hmm. how to understand what they needed. And then sort of worked my way up through, I think I was running Inco's biggest mine before my 30th birthday. Um, and then went on to run the mill and parts of the smelter and the railroads and safety and HR and went through that process. And it took me 21 years to make the president's role. Um, so I missed by a year, but there was a couple strikes in there. So not too bad. <laughs> it's not so bad. So, you know, that's okay. What made you have the transition from, I mean, essentially, you know, implementing these computer systems and wanting to write code to wanting to run a mining company? Was it just because you were in a mining environment and you had a desire to, to like get to the top of that? Or, or was there something else particularly about it that was, was, yeah, it wasn't, what? I wouldn't say at that stage, it was particularly mining. Yeah. I had been working a couple of years with the foreman, you know, and seeing what they did and being underground with them. And uh, mm-hmm. it was quite fascinatingly complex. The, the things that they were, were juggling and managing um, in order to get that production up the shaft every day. And that in itself was, was challenging and interesting. And mm-hmm. um, I had had friends by then that lots of friends that uh, were involved as mining engineers more directly than I was. And I was actually situated for my computer project at a mine. Hmm. And I assume this was one of the, the, the large Inco mines in Sudbury. Is that correct? It was Stobie at that time. Yeah. 
So, you know, there's a question I have that I don't actually have an answer to or, or have any idea, but what percentage of mining company, major mining company CEOs, would you say are engineers or technical people that have actually gone through a process like that of actually working at various mines, operating mines, et cetera, sort of starting, you know, boots on the ground and working into an executive level. Uh, now it used to be quite common. Yeah. I would say now it's somewhere between zero and a very small number. Um, you know, is it 10%? There's a lot more financial people, legal people involved now. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes marketing people that went that way. Um, you know, the, I think the market kind of vacillates. Sometimes they want operators. Sometimes they want financial people. Um, perhaps we're heading back into a, a stage where the operators are back in favor. Why do you think that is? I think it's, you know, you're seeing capital blowouts. You're seeing projects that don't work the way they're expected to. Um, you're seeing increasingly complex operations as they get deeper and, um, you know, lower grades of where operating efficiency is ever more important. Something you experienced at Inco, uh, I assume, of, over the course of your tenure there was the acquisition by Valet one of the world's biggest mining companies, a Brazilian miner. Uh, when, when was that? Was that in 2004, 2005 ish? Am I getting that right? I was in university six. when it happened. Yeah. I thought it was six. six yeah. For maybe late five. So, you know, explain to me that because, you know, Valet, as I understand it, especially at the time, the reputation is they were one of the largest iron ore miners, particularly in the world. They bring, they, Purchase Inco, which stands for the International uh, Nickel Company, which I'm not sure everyone knows that. Uh, I would say the world's leading nickel company. Uh, nickel is a, a much more complex commodity to mine than iron ore, right? I mean, so many iron ore mines are almost an earth moving exercise, whereas nickel is so complicated, uh, sometimes geologically, but certainly metallurgically. Um, you know, how, how was that? Into this, how was the process of integrating that company into a, a foreign sort of super miner? So at the time, you know, I basically went into the president's role in Sudbury shortly after they took over. Mm-hmm. And during my tenure, you know, most of the, the involvement happened, uh, you know, more at the corporate level in Toronto than at the operating level. Mm-hmm. But there was, you know, they took us down to Brazil and they showed us their operations and you, you nailed it on the mark. The degree of complexity of the, especially the operations in Sudbury, where, you know, you have all your mines are down below shaft bottom. You've got the smelter in the middle of a city. You're ringed by First Nations that have a, an interest in the property. Um, you've got, with most nickel smelters, copper is a toxin. With most copper smelters, nickel is a toxin. The Sudbury ore body has 50-50. Okay, so the wonderfully complex metallurgy, everything, um, 10 different mines running. (laughs) I've never heard metallurgy referred to as wonderfully complex before. (laughs) Well, it's just... It, like they're wonder, they're just interesting problems mm-hmm. to sort and figure out. And you know, we generated twenty five percent of our own power. We had smelters, we had refining, we had our own railroad. You know, it's um, it's 
and one of the beauties of Inco is they've been running a hundred years and they knew it was complicated and they knew that they, that the future executives were going to be homegrown. And that's why someone like myself would have been put in charge of running Inco's largest mine before I was 30. You know, mm-hmm. they, they start developing you at a very young age, move you around, show you this, show you that, see this so that you're ready to move up through those you know, various stages of the operation before you get to it. So that complexity was very new to Valet. And mm-hmm. in the early stages, they, they weren't particularly uh, involved at the operating level. Um, much more now, so I believe. Okay, so let's go to the next stage because you know after was it you were there from 1981 to 2009, and then you did you took a very I, I would call it a you know a left turn at that point, right? Starting a very junior company uh, focused on gold in Mexico, uh, which went on to be Torex Gold. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about that because? You know, going from base metal, from nickel in Sudbury, working for one of the biggest mining companies on the planet with, you know, I don't know how many thousands of people must be working for Inco in, in Sudbury at any given time to, you know, a company that had zero people working for it when you started, you know, what, what inspired you to do that? So it was kind of interesting, as I say, I had planned to be president and I hadn't really planned past that. Um, you know, so, <laughs> so, you know, I found myself in this position of, I love the president's job. Like I, I said, you was, would have only been like 40, 42, something like that at that stage. Am I pretty right pretty close to 50 when I finished. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I went in the president's role around 47. And, and, um, and sorry, you were saying you loved the role, you loved the job. Yeah. And, um, you know, but at, at some point you start to think about the next one and, you know, the chief operating officer role didn't look particularly interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I had a long, hard think about it. And, you know, I'd run one of the biggest mining operations in the world, could probably go and write, build another one um, or, or run another one. But I also use these very, um, I don't want to use the word progressive, but these these ways of managing people that were were designed to, create a work experience where people willingly gave their best. Okay, and we call it systems leadership, developed by a fellow called Dr. Ian McDonald outside of London. And it's, it's an absolutely brilliant way to create organizations and lead teams. So I decided I really wanted, but I had tried to implement it in a large company. You know, when you have some yeah. of your cultures, you know, it's built out of double welded box beam girders. Like it's, it's hard to change it. Um, and then when you have a, a big new company that's got its own culture coming in from South America, um, that was going to be harder and harder to do. So it, to me, it was really attractive to go out and start and build a company from the bottom up and build it with that cultural emphasis in it. And um you know, and demonstrate what a mining company could actually be from an employee, community, et cetera, relations point of view. So I went off to do that. And now sometimes people think a big executive, a big company executives, it's, you know, they have thousands of people that do everything. I was always a worker. Like I always wrote and designed and did that sort of stuff, even in the big company. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, people would say after I left a mine for years later, they were pulling out policies or how to's or the, the Fred wrote. Um, so the actual getting down into the work wasn't foreign to me. And mm-hmm. a lot of people that came out of the Inco system were like that. Okay. We were, you know, you didn't have a cast of thousands to do the work. We were expected to, to lead and solve problems and figure it out um, without a consultant in sight, usually. Um, can I, can I ask, you know, what are the premises of systems leadership? What, what are the basics of that? So I would say the, the underlying premise is that systems leadership is a series of psychological models that allow you to predict how people will react to various organizational stimuli. Mm. Okay. So if you design your, your incentive system like this, you can predict that people will behave like that. If you design it like this, they'll behave like this. If you task people a certain way, you can expect them to behave like that. If you task them this way, you might get a different behavior. Okay. And so it's, it's about creating, you use your management behaviors, use the systems that you develop on how people work and the symbols are the three tools you have to create a work experience that leads to people willingly giving their best. And it has this absolutely magical um, principle as one of those predictors is what's called the values continuum. And like, so if you looked at Torex, you would never find values on the website. If you look at Rylight, you will never find values on the website that were designed by some committee that says this and this and this. Systems leadership says there are six different values that every human society judges another human on. Different societies will judge the same action differently, but they'll use the same six values. And those six values are, they judge it somewhere between fair and unfair, loving and unloving, honest and dishonest, courageous and cowardly, dignifying or disrespectful, and um, trustworthy and untrustworthy or dishonest or honest, whichever one of those they didn't say. So those Mm -hmm. six, and they'll judge it somewhere between it. And what I, in using that, I've found that most conflict, you can, if you listen carefully, you can figure out which value is offended. And then if you actually listen, so when we went in and bought this project for Torax, there had been a blockade for two years. Okay. And there was a lot of very angry people and there was lawsuits. and there was all kinds of things going on. But when you actually listen to, and they're always talking about money, this and money, that, da, 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 all these things are fair. But the fundamental, when you listen underneath it, that there was the value that was offended was fairness. And there was three different Ahito groups and two had been treated one way. And then there had been a change in management in the previous company. And so the agreement negotiated with the third one was different than these two. Ah. And so, so who felt they got the better deal, the first two or the second or the, the first third? Two. Okay. And so the third one was blockading. And so when we went in to listen and we listened through the values continuum on how it mattered in their culture, and once we dealt with the fairness issue, we literally solved the blockade in three meetings. Um, because and get- how long had this? You bought this company from a major. Uh, you brought this project from a major, from a major miner. How long had they been doing this for? Three years, did you say? It was two years. Two years. Okay. And, uh, 
you know, we had some advantages is that the anger that had built up wasn't, wasn't for us. And, you know, we, we couldn't speak to the past and didn't need to, we could speak to the future, mm. but that values continue and listening for which value is offended will often get you to the, um, the root cause that of a dispute. And so once you identified fairness as the value that, that, that was offended, how did you go about addressing that? Was there, is there, does the systems leadership have a route to do that? Or is this, or did you just simply give them the same offer as the other two got? How, how did that work? At, at the end of the day, the solution was as simple as you say, um, you know, but systems leadership, when you, when you use systems leadership, if you're going to put in a, um, a new policy or something, you, you look at the different cultures in your organization and you say, how will they receive that? Mm-hmm. Will it land as fair? Will it land as loving? Okay. Will it land as dignifying? And so let's say when we put in our recruitment and selection processes in the, around the, the, the community and, you know, we had 2000 jobs and 7,000 people. So, but when someone came in, our system for recruitment and hiring was designed to enhance the dignity of the person coming in. You know, that was considered in the design. So you would never have somebody in our HR department say, sorry, we don't have any jobs. Okay, which might well be true. You would say, listen, we don't have any jobs right now, but this is coming up. And if we look at your skill set and what that job requires, you know, if you spent the next three months, it's going to come up in three months. And if you worked on this at home and that at home, and, and we can help you here and we can help you there, you would be in a much better position to um, be qualified for that when the time comes. So when you look at the values continuum that lands, it's loving. It, it, it enhances their dignity, for sure. Um, feels fair. So it lands on the left side. So you can design your system so they land on the positive side. And then the symbols of the company, how we behave in the community. Okay. Um, it's like we went, when we started that project, this is a uh, community with no experience in um, dealing with a major industrial company. So, you know, fairly modest levels of education. And so we made a computer video um, of what we were going to do to their mountain. We're going to take the top off and we're going to put it over here. And then we're going to put our tailings here. And they're, you know, they're quite close to your river. And this is how we're going to protect against that. So we made this computer generated video. And then we went in in every home. And we, we presented to them in their house. And so the shy ones could ask questions. Um, so every family got a one-on-one presentation from someone from your team. So, that yep. they, okay. so when the government came for their mandated public consultation and they set up the big tent, okay, and public consultation, nobody came. <laughs> They'd already, already been knew. consulted. They'd already been consulted. They knew. Yeah. And they, they you know, we built trust by, by doing that. So, so how you do things is influenced by how you, what systems leadership tells you. So it's, it's ESG at a very fundamental level of mm-hmm. how you build trust. And, and uh, you know, when mine's 
most mines do a wonderful job of protecting people's water and protecting people's children. That's what really, really matters. But occasionally things go wrong. And they know that. So when they're looking, they have to say, can we trust you? Um, you know, I'm not trusting some company. I'm trusting you mm. to not damage my water. And telling me all these wonderful things is one thing. Can I trust you is what it comes down to. They don't trust companies. They trust people. You know, I'm sort of scratching my own itch here. We're getting into the weeds a little bit, but I'm going to do it anyways. When, when you, when you're, okay, you had this idea, systems leadership at Torex. Did you hire people that you felt for the executive team, for the management team, et cetera, and on down that this idea resonated with from the get-go or had experience in this, or did you train that system into all new employees as well? So it, it turned out, you know, I thought I was going to be starting with a clean sheet of paper and I could build this company. Yeah. And it turns out you don't get a clean sheet of paper because everybody comes with their own baggage. Okay. With their own systems, their own models, but we very carefully selected um, the people that, uh, you know, we thought were attuned to this model. And I think we were very successful. We had a couple that, you know, we had to make some adjustments. But Ann Steven, um, I hired on the HR side, and she's now going to join us um, here at Rylight on Monday. Um, you know, she, she's totally in tune, had been trained and developed that. And, you know, she, she and I were, you know, partners in developing the culture all the way along. And I would say, for the most part, some people have been known to say that, you know, our employees were always our very best recruiters. Because when we were recruiting, and it's difficult recruiting, they always know somebody that works there. Mm. And then they always phone them. And, you know, people say, yeah, it's a wonderful place. And some people say, I've been actually ruined from working anywhere else. Because, <laughs> you know, once I, you know, we, we had very few meetings. People were very clear on what their roles were and what their authority was. And then they just get on with it. Um, there was no shared accountability. You know, an individual was accountable for that. It, it wasn't um, their authorities to question or all were very clear. It's a, some, some people that are like um, well, Tom Palmer at Newmont, you know, his father was one of the developers of the system. Um, hmm. And um, Tom is very schooled in it and has been extraordinarily successful. And some people have used a lot of say it's almost like cheating. You know, leading is supposed to be hard, and it isn't actually that hard if you set it up right. It's a marvelous system. So, was there a was it a painful transition at all going from, you know, a multi 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 billion dollar company with you know almost an infinite amount of resources and employees and teams, to you know a fresh start? There's and the reason I ask is because it's almost like a cliche in the junior mining space of executives from a major company coming in and trying their hand at a junior and kind of getting blown out of the water by not understanding a lot of the complexities of that or the differences in those two, two spaces. And then you went on to 
turned Torex into a plus $3 billion company. Obviously that didn't impact you, but you know, was it a steep learning curve or was it a smooth transition? I would say it was relatively smooth. Um, you know, my first challenge was we, we raised, you know, $225 million and I had $225 million in a bank account. Absolutely no idea how to get it out. Um, they didn't give you a debit card or a checkbook or something (laughs) no no so i quick quick hired a cfo that could get that stuff started out um but um you know it was there was a whole bunch of us that figured it out together Mm. and you know none of us were too proud to listen and you know it's you, you i i learned very quickly that in the majors um, especially Inco, we were trained. Like they spent a lot of effort training people on all sorts of things that weren't related to your function. Okay. So hmm. you'd, be, you'd be taught about, you know, decision-making processes and all sorts of things. When I get to the junior world, you find there isn't much training um, spent on people outside of their no. function. And we spend a lot of time training Um you know, on leadership skills, how to be a team member or how to be a team leader, Uh, you know, how to define work so that people understand it, how to define tasks so that people don't waste their time um, doing something that's fuzzy and you come back and say, no, that isn't quite what I wanted. Well, you should have said what you wanted the first time so they didn't waste their time. And if they're wasting their time, it's probably coming out of their family life. And... You know, if you care about your people, you don't waste their family time. Um, so, so yeah, it wasn't, you know, I look back with fond memories. Um, mm-hmm. You know, as a team, we had an absolute blast. And I think they're all very, very proud of what they created. And, you know, some people didn't fit in and, and moved out, but they all stayed friends. Huh. And now I, I, I want to talk about the transition to Rhyolite, but I, I first want to sort of take a step back and and talk about, the role of technology in mining and, and sort of, I was going to say it's evolving role, but I think the role of technology has not really evolved in mining at quite the rate it should have over the last couple of decades. And I want to talk specifically about the Mukai system. So you mentioned that earlier in the conversation. Uh, I'm sure a few people caught that and were wondering or maybe scratching their heads on what that means. This is something you've been working on for, for many decades now. Can you give us the overview of what the Makai system is and, you know, frankly, the role it's played in, in your career and you hope it to play going forward. Yes, sure, gladly. So when I was running a mine 30 years ago, I'm, I'm an industrial engineer. I'm in Creighton mine. I'm down 7,200 feet below surface. We're driving tunnels that are six meters by six meters. Um, as an industrial engineer that looks at things as a systems, I can, I can look at a mine and say, this is just a, a logistics business. Mm. You know, we drill and blast the material, but really we're in a business of moving stuff. Mm-hmm. Okay? And because of the size of the equipment, it's running on single lane roads because the truck takes up the whole tunnel. Mm-hmm. And so who wants to run a logistics business on a single lane road? It is just not efficient. Okay. Right. And for so, people who have never been in an underground mine, you know, you've got these, these tunnels with little bays in them, right? That the yeah. machinery can kind of pull into, but often what happens, it's two guys meeting in a tunnel. One of them's backing up, pulling into the bay and it's yeah. 
it, it's a system not known for its efficiency, really. And, you know, you can tell which one's going to pick up, is going to back up. It's always the smallest one. <laughs> um, but, it's very Darwinian pecking order down there, I yeah. guess. But so what that means is you don't know when your supplies are going to get there. Yeah. Okay. So you, that means you have to have supply storage areas close to the workplaces, which then means you have to bring them down. You have to unload them in a supply storage area. Then somebody has to come and get them and move them when they need them. There's wastage, there's spoilage, there's all that sort of stuff happens. Okay. Mm -hmm. And time wasted, you know, automobile plants do just in time delivery. Okay. That's just a system. It comes off, gets delivered on the floor, gets used. They don't use warehouses anymore. They used to, they don't anymore. But with a logistics system, the way we had it, you didn't have that ability to predict when stuff was going to come. Um, so you didn't. You inventory. Inventory costs money. Okay. Mm -hmm. Every time you put it down and pick it up again, doesn't matter what it is, whether it's supplies, whether it's ore, whether it's waste, um, it's inefficient. So what I was trying to do is kind of a weird hobby um, as an engineer. I was trying to figure out a way to make bi-directional travel in a tunnel that was half the size. And it was never my job. It was always just, how do you fix this logistic problem that is mining? And yeah. um, so it wasn't my job. I worked on it on the, you know, on my off hours when I was bored. And guess you didn't like golf, I suppose, eh, Fred? Well, I, I worked on it less <laughs> when I played golf. <laughs> <laughs> I played a lot of squash and I, you know, long winters in Sudbury though, long winters in Sudbury. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and there's always time waiting for the cage. Yeah. And, uh, and you know, what it's like when you're designing something, you solve one problem, you create five more. Mm -hmm. And then, but about, you know, 25 years into it, I finally thought I had solved the last problem. And, you know, we had a, an entirely new systemic way of moving it. And in order to, to get bi-directional travel and still move significant volumes, your vehicles have to be long and skinny by definition. Mm. Okay. The, the reason that, you know, trucks are, are short, wide and tall, which is why we have the big cross-sectional areas, these drifts. And if we're going to spread out, you know, and get bi-directional travel, let's be long and skinny. Okay. We have lots of length. Length isn't mm -hmm. an issue in our tunnels. It's the cross-sectional area that costs us money and it's getting chewed up. So, Finally, I think figured that out. I, I for a while I used the railveyor concept, long and skinny, mm -hmm. and and did quite a lot of work with that at uh, at Valley. Um, but it has some some challenges that uh, I thought could be overcome with a with a different system. And so this Makahai system and Muck stands for broken ore. Um, Makahai was always my expression when I was lining up my crews foreman and it basically meant, okay, we're all clear on what we got to do now. Makahai, which meant basically get out here and get it done. Um, and it was always kind of my rallying cry. So it's, um, it's, it became the name for this system. Apparently I like the name better than most, but, um, <laughs> you know, also, but what it is in order to get long and skinny, I had to put it on rails. Yeah, now you can put two rails on the ground, okay, which we used to do back in the day. Mm -hmm. And but then if you put the rails on the ground, your rubber tired equipment damages the rails right. when it drives on them. So that's a problem. And that's kind of why we took rails out of the mine once we got rubber tired equipment. So, but if you put it on the roof, on the back, as we call it, you only need one rail because it's hanging there. Mm -hmm. 
and, and it leaves the drift clear for, um, for other bigger pieces of gear to be moved through there. Okay, so now, okay, so the monorail is the way to go. And the other problem with putting rails on the floor is you need ties. And even if you're on a level, the ties, like, you know, on a, in a mine, the water kind of sits there and there's solid rock yeah, all around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it rots the ties. Yeah. And then you can't pull them out sideways like you can on a surface rail and put a new one in there. You have to lift up all the rails and take the ties out. Okay, so okay. so changing ties on the ground is it, very disruptive to the future use of the tunnel. Putting it on the roof, then you know it's up, it's out of the way, um, and then that gave us that monorail concept. Now I didn't want to invent a monorail, so Google is a wonderful thing, and uh, I found out that the European coal mines had been using them for forty years. Mm. Um, not to move coal because you do it with conveyors and, you know, there tend to be sedimentary deposits. They're fairly flat line, but they had been using, moving their, their, their miners and their materials for 40 years and their big pieces of equipment, the, the big roof supports. So that didn't need to be invented. It was already there. But what we needed to do was actually use it to drive the tunnels and, you know, excavate the tunnels. And they didn't do that. They put the, mm. the rail in afterwards. But that opened the door, that monorail and the cog drive on the monorail opened up the door to very steep tunnels. Okay, so traditionally in most mines are about seven or eight degrees. Um, with the monorail, we could drive them at 30 degrees. Right. And because of the cog drive, you can't, if you try to go 30, you try to go much steeper than eight degrees with rubber tire equipment, the tires spin. Yeah. So now if you can drive at 30 degrees, your tunnel to achieve the same elevation change is only one quarter of the length. Um, and if you can still drive it and advance it at five meters a day, it means you can get to the ore body in one quarter of the time mm -hmm. and, and one quarter of the cost. So that opens up huge opportunities, you know, to get to the ore bodies quickly. And now the, on the monorails, it's because it's on rails and because it's cog driven, it's easy to automate. Okay. And that takes us back to your technology question for, for many, many years, the mining industry has been trying to automate the existing processes. You know, they take the equipment that we use scoops and trucks, and we try to automate them. We didn't actually change the process. We just tried to automate the process as it is. And in, as an industrial engineer would look at it, say, okay, how do we change the process? How do we optimize this one, sub-optimize that to make it work? So this case, we can automate this steep, you know, we've changed the process. It's now 30 degree inclines that we can put in if we want to. It's long and skinny. We have bi-directional traffic in the same drift, a separate spot off to the side for people to walk out of the way. <clears throat> we can automate now because we don't need to steer. And that's been the trouble with the rubber tired equipment trying to automate it is the, is the steering. GPS doesn't come through the rock. Mm -hmm. So how do you know where that piece of equipment is? And, you know, the equipment is hard. The rock is hard. The people are soft. And so if the, <laughs> if the equipment in the rock and the people are in the same place, same time, never good for the people. Yeah. And that's been the challenge in automating is how do you automate it in a way that people can still get in there?
So with the monorail, we can automate, okay? Because you don't steer it. The people walk over here, the train goes over here, a train can't go off the track um, and jump like a, a train can on the ground. Um, so automating is easy. Um, because it's a cog drive, every rotation of your drive wheel on your train, you know exactly how far it's gone. Right. And so you can really tune that down to the to an inch or so at a time and, and be very precise in your movements. And so if there's a switch on the rail when you have to switch from this track to that track, you know you're going to get there on 282 and a half rotations. Mm-hmm. So when you get to 250, you, you, you send the signal to turn the switch over. Okay. When the, tra- the last car clears it, you, you send the signal to change it back. It's really quite easy to automate. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, that helps. Now, the other, you get the bi-directional travel. So you have trains coming up ramp and trains going down ramp same time. So now you can predict where your trains are going to be and your supplies are going to be. And you can now do just-in-time delivery of supplies um, because you can send it down on a train and it gets to the heading when the crew needs it. Mm-hmm. You're not worried about trucks getting in the way and something happening. And, and uh, so that goes on and on. The, it also, it all is the opportunity to make the, the trains electric. And when you make them electric, because that's almost the only way to put enough power into the train right. to run the thing. So ventilation costs are decreased massively, presumably. Drops dramatically. And you can make the entire mine electric. Okay. Huh. Um, so and now people it's electric. maybe don't understand what a huge cost and, and role of ventilation is in, in large underground mines, right? If you ever see the size of the turbines on surface that are blowing air down. And what they often don't understand is that when you're in a tunnel, you can only blow air through at a certain velocity. If you go faster than that, you create a dust storm. Right. Okay. It picks up dust off the ground. So that volume of air you can blow through a tunnel limits the amount of machinery diesel machinery you can have and so the further down a ramp you go and the longer your cycle time gets to get trucks of ore up you know if you can get a thousand ton a day up from 500 feet down you can only have the same number of trucks because you can't put more air on the ramp so you get to uh you know 2,000 feet down you only get 500 ton a day Mm -hmm. and um so all electric equipment makes a dramatic difference all electric equipment was was bi-directional travel, you know, you can just send train after train after train up on one rail and on the rail coming down and on the, you send the same number of trains down. So you have no logistics bottleneck. It's just train after train on the same rail. Mm-hmm. If you try doing that with trucks, you know, at some point there's so many head to head interchanges that you know, it goes. It's, it's why if you look at the, the Continental Railroads, mm-hmm. they're always dual track. If you look at the low volume tracks, you know, you go along single track and every now and then there's a siding and the train coming the other way parks in the siding and waits for the other one to get there. Mm-hmm. And then they go. Right? So in our system, it's dual track, just like an intercontinental railway and uh, very, very efficient. Um, so yeah. basically you are having to move less rock. You're able to, you know, increase declines and go on shorter distances. It's going to take less time. It's going to take less money. Uh, you're yeah. going to be able to decrease ventilation. You're going to be able to utilize electric power. So there's a whole 
host of benefits here. One other benefit is we actually regenerate electricity when we come downhill. Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And uh, so we actually bring our our backfill down as rockfill. And so when you bring a train of backfill down to fill a hole, we actually capture the energy. When you put paste fill into a hole, you lose the energy. Mm -hmm. You know, gravity gets it there, but you don't get anything for it. So our trains, when they're bringing a train of ore up, when they bring a train of rock fill down, they generate 80% of the energy that it took to bring the train of ore up. Okay. So this system, this system's patented as well. Am I understanding that correctly? It is. So it can't easily be mimicked. It can't, it can't be replicated by anyone. And who, who current, how does that patent work now? Is, is it, in your name, is it in Rhyolites? How, how has that been set up? So Torex actually owns the IP okay. because Torex paid to develop the equipment. Mm-hmm. Okay. As the, I originally owned the IP and I sold it to Torex mm-hmm. and I sold it for a no cost unlimited license to use the technology. Okay. So I see. And that's what I sold it to Rhyolite. Okay. Got it. Uh, so basically good. only Torex and Rhyolite are able to use this technology at this time. Correct. Yep. And has it been successfully implemented or tested uh, in the field anywhere? So it's been about half tested at Torex. Yeah. Um, when we started the, you know, there was the, the principle was if there's a risk of failure, fail early and fail cheap. Okay, so we tested the, the highest risk of failure aspect. And, and there was all kinds of people that said we couldn't do it. Okay, and basically the highest risk was the, the jumbo drill, which is on the monorail. And the monorail is suspended by chain from the roof. And there was lots of people said, you can't stabilize that piece of equipment adequately that when you flop the boom over and start drilling into the rock, that it won't move. And we thought we could, but we were, you know, we thought we had a way to do it, but it proofs in the pudding. Mm -hmm. And so when we built the initial machinery, we just designed it to make sure that the principles of physics weren't going to cause us problems. Okay. We did (laughs) not design it to make it go fast. And so we tested all of that equipment to make sure that it worked. The second phase was to make it go fast. Now, we hadn't achieved that second phase when Torex needed to make a decision about what it used. Okay, and so because that wasn't proven to that speed point of view, um, you know, Torex went and we didn't actually do the second phase of testing. Now, since then, after I've left Torex and had much more time to work on it, we have simplified the system quite dramatically. And matter of fact, we don't use that jumbo drill anymore. Okay. We've, we've eliminated that and we work off the ground now. We work okay. off simple old school equipment that's been around for 100 years and is low complexity, high reliability, and inexpensive. Um, you don't need, you know, if you're in a fairly remote area with modest education, it's easy to train people how to use this equipment and how to fix it. So 
the new system, I'm, I'm actually now in the last three or four months, I don't wake up thinking of new ways to make it better anymore. Um, it's as good as it's going to get, in my opinion, after 30 years. Now it's all about the business prospects of how do we acquire the assets to, to move it forward. Okay, good. So I want to get into that in a second. <clears throat> but first, I want, to, I want to lay the groundwork for people who are, who are following along here. So you'd been at um, Torex for years. You developed the system. Uh, you'd sort of stepped out of the CEO role. You were executive chairman for the last, couple, or the last year or so that you were there. Um, explain to me how you ended up at Rhyolite. And for context here for people listening... Uh, I was already a shareholder of Rhyolite. I'd invested in a private company, a private exploration company that Rhyolite acquired assets in Suriname. Uh, and then, you know, by upon acquisition, I became a shareholder of Rhyolite, which I still am a significant shareholder today. And I was told, uh, Jamie, sit tight. We're going to be bringing in a, a new CEO. He's going to be, you know, has quite a track record and he's going to be doing some very new and different things with the company. And that turned out to be you. So from your perspective, can you tell us what happened here? And you, you know, for me on the outside, I kind of saw you get parachuted in and you were there and there was the Mukai system and away we go. Um, you know, what, what was your vision in terms of joining what, which at the time, uh, was, you know, a small sort of, uh, tiny junior exploration company with grassroots exploration assets and, you know, a, a finite amount of capital. Yeah. So, what I, what I wanted to do with what I would call the last gig of my career, <laughs> um, you know, one last 10-year gig, and um, I wanted to build a mining company based on this technology. Mm -hmm. And um, that's what I wanted to do. Now, Tony Cedro, who wrote the initial big check for Torex to get it started, um, he'd been recruiting me to run Rhyolite as an exploration company. And, um, you know, I said, like, that looks like wonderful assets, but exploration isn't really uh, where my heart is for this next uh, next gig. Um, and Tony's, you know, there's a reason why he's done as well as he is. He's quite, he's quite persuasive. And, and, and for um, people listening, Tony is the CIO and CEO of Tyrus Capital, right? Quite a, a very, very right. successful investment firm out of, uh, I think, what, London and Monaco, I think is where they're based. Yeah, Monaco primarily, but I expect some, some people in London as well. So, so, you know, so Tony and I talk back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And I said, Tony, this is what I want to do. I'm happy to do that as well. But what I want to do is build a mining company based on this technology and using systems leadership. And if you and the board are willing to support and back that, then I'm happy to come. And, um, you know, we'll run the exploration. We can do that. Um, you know, if I've run organizations with 5,000 people, I'm pretty sure I can handle a few drills. Um, <laughs> so. There's a whole bunch of geologists that are crying hearing that right now. <laughs> you're, you're, you're offending an entire profession. <laughs> yeah. And, um, so I don't have to figure out where to drill, but the actual management of the drills, I'm, I'm sure we can manage that. Um, there's geologists that will do all of that targeting and stuff. I'm good with that. So, but I want to build this company and the, and with this, and if Tony, if you're in to, to support that and the board is in to support that, um, you know, I've got a good track record with you. I respect you, um, trust you, and um, I'm in. 
So didn't have much capital, but you know, there was a lot of folks with deep pockets and they were very interested in the, the, uh, the technology and its potential. So off we go. So I joined in sometime in September mm-hmm. and uh, we're actively working now. You know, we've done a ton of work on, on evolving the final details of the system. Uh, and now we're, we're searching for that first mine we can build. And, you know, you talked about technology earlier. You know, some often the mining industry is compared with the oil industry and how innovative yeah. they are with their drill holes. And and I would say, you know, I expect there, there's some truth in that, but, you know, they're going to drill a hole for five million bucks. And that sounds like a lot of money. And if that hole doesn't work, that five million dollars is lost. But if you build a mine for a billion dollars and the most expensive component is 30 million, if that one piece doesn't work, the whole billion doesn't work. Right. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And so, like, I expect oil companies aren't innovating at a, at a hectic pace in their refineries. Um, drilling, I get it. But there's this, there's this inherent reluctance to put, you know, the, that, that risk, okay? And everybody, when it comes to innovation in a big way, is in a race to be second. And, and here's sometimes where we miss having the CEOs that are detailed technical folks because they can actually evaluate the risk of something failing. And um, like when we put in a Torex, we put in some very significant innovation and in one of them was that rope con. And I, I had investors, you know, question me for four years before we built that about why are you putting in that rope con? And that, you know, there was several very, very good reasons, but some of them being safety, but it was also economic. and it's worked like a charm. Okay. So, and then we, this little gold company built the biggest tailings filtration, high pressure tailings filtration plant in the world. I think it's still the biggest, Mm. Um, you know, so way before the the tailings dams failures, we had put in dry stack tailings on a 14,000 ton a day plant uh, where people said, you can't do that. And, and and you when you say tailings dam failures, you mean ones that have been happening in Brazil and elsewhere, not at Torex, just for no, Torex has had no yeah, failures because yeah. it put in dry yeah. stack tailings. No, I know. But, I just wanted to clarify that for people who who might not have the context there. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for that. Um, it's you know all I'm saying is we took some innovative risks, you know, because the technical team and myself could say yes, it's innovative, but it's not a risk. You know, it's a manageable, mm. very manageable risk. That rope con was the best conveyor I'd ever seen. And it's developed by ski lift people. Um, you know, if you've run on a Doppelmeyer ski lift, they're the same people that built that, that conveyor. Mm. So we have a track record for innovating. So we innovate both on the social front with systems leadership. We innovate on the, the technical front um, across a whole area of things. And I think that track record travels with the team as we, we do this one. And, you know, we raised $18 million in, in December. And, um, you know, it's, it's people that trust us to get it right. Can you, can you talk about who some of those investors were that came into that financing? I'm not sure if that's public or not. I'm not sure either. So I'll, I'll choose All not right. to. They're, they're big institutional names. Mm-hmm. Um, and and are and there are they betting on the implementation of this technology and the advantage that that's going to give you in going out and acquiring assets? Is that is that that's the exactly here? what they're betting on? Yeah, they're actually betting on us to completely change the industry. 
and and that's what I want to talk about here as we kind of round out this conversation. And the for me, this whole backstory, which you know, you and I've had a, a briefer version of this conversation in the past, but what I want to bring to listeners is the ability to mine things at a cheaper price allows you to mine things that cannot be mined by other people, which it allows you to buy assets that are for you assets, but are for other people, not assets. They're just waste, right? Am exactly. I, am I summarizing that well? And the, yep. the advantage that potentially gives a company is, is pretty, you know, it's pretty unheard of in the sector, you know, like everyone's kind of competing at an even playing field, uh, in the mining space and the ability to transform on economic assets is it's everything really. Yeah. And in, you know, and it, it works, you know, we haven't actually said the numbers, but it's easily 35% less than the capital, 35% less than the operating cost. And, you know, it could be up to 80% less in the time to get the mine into production. And in most cases, you can double the daily production relatively easily as well. Plus all the ESG credits, you know, it's electric, you know, it uses local people very efficiently, makes less waste rock. All of its waste rock goes back as fill, um, you know, so you don't get the acid rock drainage issues. Yeah. It's, as you point out, it's a startling competitive advantage. You know, the only like analogy I can think of, and it's not a perfect analogy, but it's what David Lowell did uh, in you know the '90s and early 2000s in terms of going after you know for people who don't know David Lowell, one of the most successful exploration geologists of all time, something like 14 discoveries to his name, billions and billions and billions of dollars of wealth generated from these discoveries. You know he went out and discovered porphyry copper deposits, almost identical at a time that technologically we were able to actually successfully process porphyry copper deposits. You know, he didn't invent the technology, but he had a a discovery model that perfectly timed it. And he was able to unlock billions of dollars of value that had previously never been touched. And I see this as, again, not a perfect comparison because he was a geologist and exploration geologist, but it's a, it's an interesting analogy of, of what can be done when you have the right technology at the right time and the right people uh, deploying it. I, I agree. That's, that's exactly what this is. Um, I have CEOs that phone me and everybody's in a race to be second. Um, you know, and, and so that our strategy isn't to be peddlers of technology. Our strategy is to go out there and buy those assets and build them and turn them into very profitable mines. So I'm sure you're having lots of conversations right now that you are not at liberty to talk about today. But for people who are, you know, just hearing about Ryle like now or interested in the company, you know, what can you say for them? Uh, are, are there deals in the works? Is there a specific type of commodity you're, you're looking at, a specific region? What kind of information can you give us? So we are commodity agnostic. Okay. If, if, as long as it's a hard rock mine, which is basically any metal, then uh, we're happy to go there. We're interested in, in using our mining technology. And so we would prefer not to build and permit processing plants in this early stage. So we're looking for areas and deposits that have a mining or processing plant close by, either on the process, on the property or somewhere we can toll. I'm happy to run one. I'm happy to fix one up. I just don't want to go through the time and energy of permitting a brand new one. Okay. Mm. 
So those that tends to put us in established mining jurisdictions where there's already a uh, processing plant there. And that, that's good for a number of reasons. Established mining jurisdictions tend to be good mining jurisdictions. Um, you know, there's an infrastructure there. And, you know, governments are often reluctant to permit mines, but they're more reluctant to close existing ones because often a town dies with it. Mm. And if we can take deposits, which tend to keep going to the center of the earth, but they get uneconomic to a certain point, if we can make those deposits economic and keep those, um, those mines producing, we don't have to create new mines. We don't have to disturb new areas. We have people that continue to have a job and a career and all those things. So it, it, it ticks a lot of boxes. And so right now we've designed three mines. We're working on the fourth um, for various people. And we are in discussions. Um, you know, base metals would be one of the, the first ones we're, we're looking at. Um, and we've also looked at two other gold mines. And now it's just the discussions of how people want to proceed. And when you say you've designed three mines already, so what are the, what's the potential there that you could license the technology to existing operators or that you could actually then, or, or you could acquire that asset from them and for some, yeah. on some terms and operate it yourselves. And it really has all of those choices. Our preference is to either own or operate the asset. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and if you looked at say Valley and Sudbury, which I'm very familiar with, all of its mines are below shaft bottom. It would work very well. Um, in all of those mines. I can't afford to buy Sudbury just yet. Um, so, you know, that would be a, a place if Valley was interested where we would look at some sort of leasing royalty, you know, fee for dollars per ton, some other commercial arrangement. Mm -hmm. Our preference is to be able to buy assets that have no value. But of course, we can't be able to buy them all. So we won't limit the option of working with others. Okay. Um, is there anything I haven't touched on in terms of what you guys are doing at Rhyolite plans or that, that I should have asked anything? I think you've been very thorough, Jim. All right. Well, Fred, I appreciate you, uh, taking the time to chat today. Very excited to be a shareholder of Rhyolite. Uh, excited to see what you guys do over the coming year. Um, very much appreciate your time. Thanks for taking the time as well, Jimmy. And if people want to learn a bit more, uh, they can check you guys out at Rhyolite Resources. I assume you guys have some contact information there. It's all on the website. And there's a five-minute video on the website under the Makahai Mining System. That five-minute video will give people a really good understanding of what it's about. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, that is Fred Stanford from Rhyolite Resources, rhyoliteresources.com. All right. That's it. Thanks a lot, Fred. Did you enjoy today's podcast? Me too. If you want more like it, head over to resource-insider.com, my website where you can sign up for our free weekly newsletter, where you're going to get instant access to all of our new podcasts and videos. We're going to keep you up to date on what's going on in the mining industry. And most importantly, we're going to show you where we're investing our own money and what I think are the hottest deals and opportunities in the sector. Thanks for listening.